character. How good do you think you are with making choices in life? Do you tend to make decisions based off of your gut on the fly? Or are you one of those kinds of people who like to really analyze every decision that you make and make sure you've thought through every variable and that there's not a single thing that you could possibly miss before you make a decision? Uh, I have two really good friends I've known for 20 years, both Christian men. We have a really close relationship, have all these years. And I tell you, as I think about these two guys, these two guys could not be more polar opposites of each other. I mean, especially when it comes to making decisions. These two could not be more different. Uh, friend number one, he's this kind of a guy, he makes decisions on the fly, just off of his gut. He, he just, and he almost always makes the right decision. He, he almost never makes a bad decision. But he can, just, he can just read someone and he can make that call and make that decision. Then I had this other friend, I'll call him friend number two. He never makes a quick decision. I mean, he, if, if I come to him with an idea or a thought, he, the first thing he will say is, he'll look at me, he'll give me that stare, and he'll say, let me get back to you on that. And a few days later, I'll hear back from him, and he's done all this thinking and praying and research, and I've, researched, I've looked at this option online, and I'm like, whoa, you know, that's, that's a little bit too much information. Just tell me what you thought, you know. With, the guy, with friend number one, uh, he almost always makes good decisions, but there are t- and he takes advantage of these tremendous opportunities, these doors that open that just kind of come open for a brief moment in time. And it's just amazing how God's opened doors in his life. But then there are times when he has made really bad, bad decisions in his life because he was trusting his gut and he would do things that would destroy a relationship or destroy his finances. But my other friend, friend number two, the only quick decision I have ever seen him make was a decision to not make a quick decision. That's about it when it comes to him. So when I, when I have, I kind of lean more toward guy, friend number two, but when there are times when I need to make a quick decision, I'll call up that first friend. I'm like, what's your read on this? What's your gut? And then there are times when I know I have a little bit more time to make a decision, and I'll reach out to that second friend because I'm like, I know he will be thinking through every variable. He'll analyze it way more than I'll spend the time doing it and make sure I don't make a bad decision. But how about you? Where do you tend to fall on that spectrum? Do you tend to make those quick decisions and are right most of the time, or do you tend to be the one that thinks and analyzes and researches and makes sure you have the right decision? And along those lines... Who do you have around you to give you advice? Does the advice that you typically get kind of mirror that, where you make a quick decision and you kind of bring people around you who make quick decisions? Or do you tend to bring around people who are opposite than you for that reason? You know, life is filled with choices. We are given so many choices to make every single day. There are researchers who have obviously way more time than you or I do in a day who have actually done research and found that the average kid makes 3,000 decisions every single day. 3,000 decisions. But then they found out that the typical adult in America today makes 35,000 decisions every day. Can you imagine that? 35,000 decisions. Now, when you take out, say, seven hours of the day that you're sleeping, what they actually, that boils down to is you're making a decision about once every couple of seconds in your life. Now, most of those decisions that you're making, you don't spend a whole lot of time on. If you did, you'd be paralyzed, right? You'd never be able to get anything done. Most of those decisions really don't need you to take a whole lot of time. I mean, is it, am I going to eat an apple or a banana? Am I going to scratch that itch or am I not, right? Am I going to go to the doctor or am I just going to take care of these symptoms at home? 
Am I going to drive this morning down La Cunada or down La Choya? Am I going to... Am I going to jump into this conversation and say, tell this person what I'm thinking, or am I just going to keep quiet? Now, most of the time, those decisions really doesn't matter a whole lot, right? Whether we choose to um, think about them or not, we can. most of the time, those decisions, one way or another, don't make a whole lot of difference in our lives. But then there are those times that we can make decisions, and they can really impact our lives, right? And we didn't even see it coming. We didn't even realize that that seemingly innocuous decision was going to have such a huge impact on our lives. Some people call this the butterfly effect. Have you ever heard of this? It's like where you know, this seemingly insignificant decision will snowball over time and be a way bigger life change than you ever saw coming. They, they call it that because they had this theory that you know, a butterfly can flap its wings in one corner of the world, right? And it might set off this chain reaction of decision that leads to some major weather disturbance on the other side of the world, right? I mean, that's, that's the idea. But it could be something like you choosing to not answer your cell phone at one particular moment in time, thinking, I don't really need to take a call right now, and not realizing that that call, if you answered it, would have changed your life completely, right? Now, some of us think about these ideas you know, and think, yeah, I don't know that that's really true. But I can tell you, at least in one case, that idea is totally true. There was a seemingly insignificant decision that was made thousands of years ago by a couple of people. They didn't really think there was a whole lot to it at the time. But it dramatically changed the course of world history. One seemingly insignificant decision to eat a piece of fruit in a garden called Eden one day changed the whole scheme of the world, right? I mean, if they would have known that thousands of years later there would be billions of people all over the world just shaking their fingers at those two things. That was, that was a really dumb decision you guys made, right? I mean, they could have never seen the impact that decision would make and the pain and the devastation it caused as sin entered into the world and it affects us every single day of our lives. Now, last Sunday, I started a brand new series of messages called God Came Near. And the premise behind this series is that we don't just look at the Christmas story like so many churches will do over this season, but that we look at the whole story. We look at the whole story of Scripture and realize that this book tells the greatest love story that's ever been told. This love story between God and His creation, between God and humanity. And this love story starts on the very first page of this book, as we saw last week in Genesis chapter 1. And it weaves its way throughout this entire story. Last week, we saw in part one of this, uh, of this series that in Genesis chapter 3, God created Adam and Eve, and he uh, placed them in the garden, and they had one decision that God said, don't make that one. And that was the one they made. And it caused the whole world to be impacted by the interests of sin in the world. Then what we saw is in Genesis chapter 6, right, um, the, the world had just kind of digressed from there to such a point that it says that God's heart was grieved that he had even made the man. He is wondering if this whole idea was just a bad idea to create these people who would choose to love him. So by Genesis chapter 6, God decides to push the reset button on the world, right? And he decides, I'm just going to take this one family that are following me and I'm just going to start over with them. But see, sin had already entered into the world, and so as soon as they got off the boat, they reintroduced sin into the world, and the whole mess starts all over again. So does God have any other ideas? Well, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, we see, ah, God's got another idea. He decides 
to reach out to a guy by the name of Abraham, or Abram at that time, who was also following God, one of the few who was at that time. He says, Abraham, I've got an idea. I want you to follow me by faith, and if you will do that, I will bless you and your descendants, and I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? And so Abraham follows God, and God blesses him and his descendants. But then by the time we get to the end of Genesis or the beginning of Exodus, what happens? We're right back in the same place again. Now even Abraham's descendants aren't really following God, and they're slaves to a foreign uh, king, this, this pharaoh in Egypt. Now you would think at that point that God would have said, you know what, three strikes you're out, right? I mean, I tried with Adam and Eve. I tried with Noah and his family. I tried with the descendants of Abraham. You guys just keep screwing this up. I'm done. But we find out God wasn't done. Today we're going to see how God came up with another idea. And what we find out is that God hadn't given up on us. He hadn't changed his heart for us and for this crazy idea to have this creation who would choose to love him or reject him. Actually, God doubles down in that moment. And he says, I'm going to show you guys just the extent to which I will go because I love you that much. So God delivers them, all these people who were in bondage in Egypt, over a million people. He single-handedly delivers them from slavery in Egypt. And then, and then God decides to bless the socks off these guys, right? God decides as he brings them out into the desert and starts pointing them toward his, the promised land he's going to give them. God decides to give them his presence. He says, I'm going to physically make myself present in front of you guys all day and all night from this point on. And we read in Scripture that God manifested himself as a pillar of cloud that literally followed them wherever they went during the day that would somehow morph into a pillar of fire at night. God made himself physically present there to bless them. But then beyond that, God blessed them by giving them his promises, right? God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a promised land. God's giving them all these promises to show them how much he loves them. And then he says, not only that, I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to give you my expectations for how you are to live your life so that you can live a life that flourishes and doesn't suffer like everyone else who is around you. Now, with all of that, surely these guys would make the right decisions, right? Surely they would see God's presence. They would see all these blessings being lavished on him. God clearly outlining all the expectations he has for human flourishing. They're like, okay, God, we got it now. We got it, right? But that isn't what happens, is it? Turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm going to just zero in on this passage of Scripture, just a few verses in Deuteronomy 10 this morning. You can open up your Bibles or you can go to mygrace.church, click on the sermon notes tab, and you can read the Scriptures there. But as you're getting ready to turn there, let me just kind of set the scene for you here. So God brings these guys out of, uh, uh, these people out of uh, bondage and slavery in Egypt. And 40 years later, they're going to be finding themselves at the promised land. But in between, they're wandering around in this wilderness, right? Now, if you know your, your church history really well, what you actually see in the details of Scripture is it was only a couple of months after they left Egypt that they found themselves in the Sinai wilderness around Mount Sinai. And it's at this point, just two months in, that God decides to give them his law. He decides to outline for them all of his expectations for how they can flourish in this life, laying out all the expectations that he has for them. 
And then after he gives them that law, he brings them right away to the very doorstep of the promised land. It wasn't 40 years before they got there. It was pretty quick after. But God had made sure that they had the law, that they understood exactly what his expectations were. And then God said, okay, guys, go get it. And they're like, God, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? There, There are giants in that land. There's no way we could take that land. And God's like, okay, let's go back. Let's go back and wander around some more. In that moment, you see, they never were lost. Sometimes I've heard preachers say that they were lost and they needed a GPS. They weren't lost. God brought them back from the doorstep of the promised land and said, okay, I'm going to just spend some time with you guys now. I've given you the law. That wasn't enough. So I'm going to spend some time making sure you understand what it means to live into this law. And so he waits for an entire generation to die and a new generation rise up who grow up learning what it means to know and to love and to trust in God. When they are to a point when they are ready, God says, okay, now, now I want to give you my promise. Now I want to just bless you far beyond what you could ever imagine. I had this huge gift for you. But just before they go in, that's when the book of Deuteronomy is written. In the book of Deuteronomy, what you find is there are four or five sermons or speeches that Moses gives. And it's kind of like the recap before they go back onto the field again. Where Moses just kind of runs through all the highlights. It's like reminding them, don't forget this, don't forget that. I'm not going to be able to go win with you, but I want to make sure you don't forget this. And so I'm going to just pull out just a few verses here. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 16. This is kind of like uh, God's cliff notes. For the whole thing, for the whole book of Deuteronomy, it's found right here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. This is kind of like the the things that God wants to make sure they understand very clearly before they go in. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases Him and love Him And serve him with all of your heart and soul. And you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. And then in verse 14 it says, Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it all belong to the Lord your God. Yet the Lord chose your ancestors as the objects of his love. And he chose you as their descendants above all the other nations as is evident today. Therefore... Notice what God says to them here. Change your hearts and stop being stubborn. Now, in much of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, over this 40 years of wandering, God explicitly gave his law. He gave them dozens and dozens of laws to help them to understand his design for human flourishing. His design for, because he is the manufacturer. He's the one who made us. He understood us far better than we could even understand ourselves. And God says, I know what's best for you. I know how to make you flourish. And so here are the details. And God lays out in great detail all these kinds of decisions or choices that we might make in this life. He gives them clarity on how to make decisions about how to treat people and who to have sex with and when and details like how to handle sickness. I mean, he goes into page after page after page, all these little decisions, seemingly insignificant decisions that we might make in our lives. And God says, I have an idea about that. 
I have a plan for that. I have some expectations for you. If you do these, you will flourish. You see, God's not giving us this law because somehow he, you know, I watched the Grinch here again lately. I watched the latest version of it. It's not nearly as good as the Jim Carrey version, by the way, in case you're going to the movie theater. But it's okay. So I've got Grinch on my mind even this morning as I'm going into Christmas. And, uh, you know, I, sometimes I think of it when, when I look at the law, I, I see some people who see this as God the Grinch, right? This God who's far removed, who sits up there in heavens. He's like, let me see how I can squash them today. Let me see how I can make them suffer, how I can condemn them. You know, sometimes people look at the law and think, it's just a bunch of rules, hundreds of rules. Why, how does a God love us by giving us a bunch of rules? But what we find here in that summary statement is God did this out of love. God gave us this law, not so that we could suffer or be condemned. God gave us this law so that we could flourish on this earth because he loves us. He's our creator. He manufactured us. He built us, and he knows what's best for us. He knows what will damage us, and he says, don't do those things. So God designed his law not to condemn us, but so that we could understand his design for human flourishing and choose to be the objects of his love. So Deuteronomy is a book that comes at the end of this 40-year journey after God's already given the law, and he says, okay, guys, I've get, I, I want to make sure you understand exactly what you need to do before you walk into this promised land. He emphasizes here the importance of the choices that they will make and that their descendants will make. Now, I just pulled out a few verses here in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 16. And in that, there are three things that I'm seeing that God is sharing with his people and even with us today about his intentions for giving us this law and for, for us to be able to flourish. The first one is in verses 14 and 15. God says here, basically Dave Hillis' paraphrase, I want you to understand how deeply I love you. I want you to understand how deeply I love you. I mean, notice what it says where he talks about, look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything all in it, in it belong to me. Yet, I'm choosing you to be the objects of my love, the focus of my attention, not all this beauty that's around us. I mean, imagine that. Out of all that God created, God says, my humanity is what I enjoy the most. I love the most. Just this past week, I uh, led a few people on a uh, leadership retreat to the monastery that I went to in New Mexico back in May. My hope, my dream was that there would be others who would be able to experience this renewed spiritual life that came for me when I stopped everything I was doing for a week and entered into the life of this monastery in the mountains of northern New Mexico. And it was a transformative experience for many of them that went this past week. But one of the things that means the most to me, and it did again this time, was they had their first worship service every morning at 4 o'clock in the morning. 4 a.m. And you might think, David, that is just downright stupid, right? Getting up that early. How could God possibly work that early in the morning? He's asleep, you know, by that time of the day. But one of the things I loved was just walking out. There was a long walk each morning to the sanctuary from where I was staying. Uh, it was actually uh, not, too, not too long, but... I would walk outside and just look up and see this canopy of stars. And you probably can't even see it here in this picture with the light coming up at the screen. But just so many millions of stars that it actually, there was snow on the ground this past week, about four or five inches of snow. It actually illuminated my walk, all the snow on the path because, from the starlight. And I remember walking in there one morning and Psalm 8 came to my mind. When I consider the heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place. What are we that you don't even care? Why are you so mindful of us? Why, do you, why are we such the center of your attention? Yet the psalmist writes, you created us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. And I remember walking down that path thinking, God, I'll never get it. I'll never understand why you are so infatuated with me. With all of that that God created, God says, you are the objects of my love. Go figure, <laughs> right? So after three attempts with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with the, with the descendants of Abraham, God gives the law as a way to, number one, communicate his love, and number two, to lay out a path for human flourishing. He, wants, he, he doesn't want them to suffer needlessly anymore. You know, um, this is kind of like being a parent um, in my mind with the bad and dangerous decisions our kids can sometimes want to make. I have a child, and I won't name who it is, <laughs> who a couple years ago had a fire fetish. And we would catch him at times with a clicker underneath his bed, his wood bed, trying to set things on fire. Yes, you heard me right. And he did not understand why in the world we thought that was such a big deal. He's like, I'm not going to do anything stupid, Dad. I know what I'm doing, right? And I'm like, yeah, you do until you don't. Until the one time, right? And so we laid down the law at that point. We're like, you know what, Isaac? Under no, oops, I just gave it away, huh, right? <laughs> Who knew? I'm like, there is, there is no circumstance. There is no time when you can possibly ever play with fire on your own. None. There is no opportunity. That is the law in our house. Now, did Isaac see that as a loving response? Absolutely not. He thought it was dumb. He thought it was oversensitive. He thought it was restrictive. He didn't see anything that was good that would come from that. Now, you can probably, hopefully, please, tell me, you understand what I'm coming from here. You understand I had a goal for him to flourish, and that wasn't in the plan for human flourishing for my son. Or for mine, for that matter. Now, these days, we have this thing around video games. And we're constantly in this tug-of-war where we're having to restrict his access to it. Because if it were him, he could just be up 24 hours a day playing on the things. And we know that, that will not, he will not flourish with that. We know he needs other outlets for socialization, for creativity. And if that's all he has, he will not flourish. Now, these days, we're not too popular in the house because we restrict him from those. And he can't see how... We could possibly be right on this. And I say that to say, isn't that how we treat God so often? Isn't it? God sets limits to our liberties so people can flourish. When we follow God's law, we flourish. When we argue with it, when we push back, when we do things our own way, we're going to suffer whether we see it at the time or not. Side note here, what you actually see just below this passage in verses uh, 12 through 16 is that God didn't just choose God, his, you know, the Israelites as the people where he would, that he loved. 
We actually see, if you look down in verses 18 and 19, God actually says to the Israelites, you know what, I don't just love you. You're the objects of my love. You're the ones I want to pour out my love throughout all the world through as, you, as I establish a, a covenant with you. But he says, it's not just you that I love. Everyone on this planet was created in my image and my likeness. And furthermore, God says to them, he says to these Israelites, all these foreigners who are around you, I expect you to love them just as I do. But God is taking the initiative here, and he's clarifying this out of his love for us, which leads to kind of the second point, which is in verse 12, where God says to them, I want you to choose to love me. In verse 12, it says, God says, fear me. But he's not saying hide in the corner in fear kind of thing with God. What he's saying is, I want you to have this reverential awe and respect for me and to trust me when it comes to following the plan I have for you for your life. And then God says, serve me with all of your heart and your soul. But these things, both of these things, this fear and this ability to serve comes out of the ability to truly love God, which is the last point, where God says, I want you to choose to obey my law, my expectations for your life. I want you to make that choice. I'm not going to make it for you. Now, chapter 11, verses 18 through 21, God repeats the great commandment there, which we see in Deuteronomy 6, where he says, I want you to remind your children and your children's children of these things. In verses 22 through 25 of chapter 11, what we see is that God says, here's how you will flourish if you do these things. And in verses 16 to 17, God says again, here's what's going to happen if you don't. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 26 of that chapter, chapter 11. God says to them, look, today I am giving you the choice between a blessing and a curse. You will be blessed if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. But you will be cursed if you reject the commands the Lord your God has given you and turn away from him and worship the gods that you have not known before. God says to them, I'm giving you that choice because I love you. Now, in Deuteronomy 30 which is, I think, like the, uh, the, the third sermon that's, that Moses gave. Notice how he clarifies this even further. God says this. I can just hear God's heart in this. He says, now listen. Today, I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. And God says, if you do this, you will live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long and good life in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. And then God says this. Today I've given you the choice. The choice between life and death. Between blessings and cursings. Now, I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This, God says, this is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord swore to give 
to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God in his love, as crazy as that sounds, God in his love gave us his law. And he appealed to his people over and over and over again. And it worked for a little while. It actually lasted this time almost to the end of the book of Joshua. Three or four hundred years, God's people followed him. They said, we will commit to following your law, Lord. We will commit to loving you. But by the way, book of Judges, what you see is that people are choosing to reject God again. And the world's back in the same place it was. Now, does God give up? Does God have any other ideas up his sleeve? Well, you'll have to find out that next week. But in the meantime, here's what you can take away from this part of God's love story between himself and humanity. God God gives us choices, tons of them, every day. And in those choices, he calls us to choose life. He tells us how to choose life in his law, in his word. And it seems like a rather easy choice, right? I mean, how hard is it? You know, this choice, life or death, blessings or cursings. It seems like a pretty easy choice, right? Until we realize that sometimes our own ideas get in the way of that. We can have a negative attitude toward authority, and we can assume that it's always oppressive. We can assume that law isn't a good thing. But there is nothing negative about God's authority. To be under God's rule is actually to be under God's blessing. And he shows us that throughout the pages of Scripture, time and time again. Now, thankfully, because of Jesus, we don't have to suffer under the full curse of the law the way they did. In Galatians 3.13, it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. In other words, all the curses that God spells out in Deuteronomy that you might read and think, Oh my goodness, I'll never make a bad choice again right? God says, because I love you and because of the the sacrifice that Christ has made for you on the cross, he literally became that curse for you. doesn't mean that somehow there aren't natural consequences by making bad choices and that we live outside of God's blessing at times. But the full extent of the curse of the law is lifted thanks to Jesus. But God reminds us today that God designed his law not to condemn us, but so that we could understand what it means to flourish and so that we could be the objects of his love. God wants nothing more than to pour out his love on you and me every single day. That's where he finds his greatest joy. I'm not sure how you are at making choices in this life. Maybe you tend to be fairly good at it. Maybe not. Maybe I'll ask your family after the service and find out what they say about that. There are a lot of choices that we make during the day that don't make a whole lot of difference, right? But with the ones that do, God appeals to you today in love. And God says, trust me. Trust my law. Trust my design for your life. I am the one who created you, and I know how you will flourish. Choose to trust me. Choose love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity today to uh, dig into your word a little bit more and to understand what it means to truly flourish in this world. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for those times when we fall short of your standards. We ask that you would help us to see those times when we have fallen short so that we can repent of those and move on. And Lord, we can truly be within the realm of your blessing. 
and we can flourish here on this earth. God, in these next few moments as we wrap up our time together, as we spend some time uh, worshiping you, reminding ourselves of your goodness and your love, God, would you speak to us? Would you help us to see how we might be able to take a next step today in those areas of our lives where we're struggling to make a decision, we're wanting to know your will, or in those places where we know what your will is and we're struggling with being able to follow it. God, help us to follow the path of human flourishing. In Jesus' name, amen.